Take your Bible, if you would, turn over to Psalm 139. In a few moments, we will get there and read that scripture together. But as we, we begin part two of this study, we were challenged by uh, John MacArthur, pastor of Grace Community Church out in California, to speak on this issue last week as we talked about the legislation, the passing of the laws, Bill C-4 in Canada, and uh, how that will cause pastors and Christian counselors and others to possibly be um, imprisoned for standing up for the truth of God's word in this area of God's design for sexual orientation and gender identity. And so we want to talk a little bit about today how we respond to those people who are caught up and trapped in those lifestyles. And point of vulnerability, you know, we have a 33-year-old son, Joshua, married to Matt, and uh, it's been a decades-long challenge for our family as we walk this tightrope of grace and truth with them, not, you know, accepting but not affirming the lifestyle. And some of you have been touched in your lives as well. So you can pray for Joshua and Matt. They know the truth. It's just a matter of them accepting and returning to what they already know. There's a proverb, an old proverb that says, you can catch more flies with honey than vinegar. You and I, we need to emphasize as Christ followers what we are known for rather than just what we are against as Christ followers. In this particular case, we're talking about God's design for marriage and the sanctity of life as we're finishing up this week of Sanctity of Life Week. We also need to have solutions to sin problems that we preach against. And one of the greatest examples I saw was my pastor, Jerry Falwell, growing up, was a staunch advocate for uh, life. And uh, he preached against abortion in a very public way. But he also started the Liberty Godparent Home, where he invited women from all over the country who were pregnant, who needed help to come and provide housing, education, all the resources to walk through their pregnancy and even beyond to save the life of a child. And that's what we're talking about. It's one thing to preach against something, but as believers, we have to provide solutions. We have to walk through the journey with messy grace in their lives. I think of what went on just a little less than two weeks ago here in Moline at Jane Addams Elementary School. A parent contacted the Satanist organization and brought a Satanist club into that school. Now you go back less than two decades before and Child Evangelism Fellowship was denied access into schools and so they set a lawsuit that ended up in the Supreme Court and they won allowing equal access in school for good news clubs and Muslim organizations and even the Satanist club. So a parent brings this club to the school board and by law they have to allow this to be in the school. How did Christians respond to that? One pastor from a church with his followers, they went across the street from the school, picketed, called for the resignation of the school board and the administration of Jane Adams Elementary School. But another pastor began to gather information, talk to neighbors in that neighborhood because he lives in that neighborhood where the kids go to Jane Adams Elementary School. And he began to share the gospel by asking, what do you think of the Satanist Club at the Jane Adams School? And opened doors to share the gospel. He called the principal and prayed with the principal on the phone, assuring her of their support and their prayers. Uh, 
Two ways to approach the same thing, but being light and showing grace and ministering to a principal and a school administration as they're being attacked, that's the way to go. So as Christ followers, we have to stop. We have to get the facts on some of these issues and come up with a spirit-led, creative way to use these issues as an opportunity for ministry. In our men's group, Thursday night, we just finished a study with Louis Giglio in Acts 27 and 28. It was a great study, and if you have Right Now Media, I encourage you to go through that with Louis Giglio. It was great. But one of the things that was interesting is Paul's on his way to Rome. And as he's on his way to Rome, he's shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And what does Paul do, as he always does? He turns that into an opportunity of ministry. It was a divine interruption, and he leads people to Christ, and he heals people. He goes on to Rome, and there he uh, is under house arrest, and he's chained to prison guards day and night. If you read the end of Romans 16, he says that there are several people that he led to Christ who were leaders in the city of Rome, who were guards who were chained to him. The point is that we have to figure out that whatever God places, the situation God places us in, how are we going to minister with grace and truth and love? And do it in a balanced way to love the person trapped in sin but condemn the sin, the habitual sin in that person's life. So we're going to apply that to the issue of those who are involved in uh, sexual orientation, gender identity issues, and those who are for abortion as we finish out this Sanctity of Life week. So Psalm 139, Psalm 139. Let's honor God's word today. Let's stand together and let's read these from the screen. Let's read the scripture reading together, Psalm 139, because these could be uh, the meditations of your heart. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word. You may be seated. So I encourage you to take out your notes. And this is kind of like drinking from a fire hose today, but I want to give you some very good points of information, things you pretty much know, but how you can talk to people about these two important issues, uh, the LBG2Q plus and sanctity of life. So review from last week, we talked about God's design for humanity and marriage. God created man and woman as the only two genders, based on our DNA at conception, based on our physiology. Interestingly enough, John MacArthur preached on these same topics in Genesis 1:27, where it said, male and female, God created them, and his sermon was taken down from YouTube and considered hate speech. God created man and woman as the only design for marriage, and within the marriage bond, God is creating a bond of companionship a bond of commitment and a bond of intimacy. We're gonna spend some time this morning talking about showing compassion and love and grace 
and mercy and respect and understanding as we share truth to those who are contemplating this lifestyle or who are active in it. So what is the purpose for marriage between a man and a woman? I wanted to back up to this week and just remind ourselves, what is the design? Why did God put a man and a woman together, one man, one woman, for one lifetime together? Well, first of all, to, be, to mutually complete one another. To mutually complete one another. You remember Adam, he was out there and God said, I want you to name all the animals in the kingdom. He must have had a great vocabulary. Think of all the interesting words he had to come up with to describe these animals. But then at the end of all that, Adam said and felt that he was alone. He didn't have a, a relationship because the animals were beneath him. It says in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And of course, we know that he put Adam into a deep sleep and took a rib from his side and created Eve to be his wife. Men and women were created for relationships and companionships. The ultimate relationship and companionship on earth, besides the relationship with, with Christ, is the relationship with a husband and wife, mutually completing one another. Second of all, multiply, multiply a godly legacy. Multiply a godly legacy. In Genesis 1.20, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's plan to fill the earth and build new believers in Christ is through the home of godly parents. That was the model that he wanted to start off with. And then mirror God's image. A husband and wife, they mirror God's image in relationship with one another. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. If you study Judaism, you study the Old Testament, you see that there is a strong emphasis on the value and the sanctity of life. God said to them that life is in the blood. And so they came up with this whole thing that we are made in the image of God as God revealed it to the Jewish people. And a husband and wife, we mirror the relationship of the love and unity of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then fourthly, part of God's design for marriage is to manifest the gospel, to show the gospel. And we Close last week with that thought in Ephesians 5, we emphasize that marriage between a husband and wife who are believers in Christ reflect the gospel and their relationship before a watching world. Your neighbors know why you pull out at a certain time on Sunday after a while when they know you're headed to church. They watch who comes to your backyard for the cookouts. They're watching, they're observing, they're watching you at work and the things you say and you don't say the things you're involved with at the water cooler and discussion and the things that you're not. They see those things. And marriage takes prayer and work to continue to build a godly marriage. You have two sinners who are hopefully filled with the Spirit living in harmony with one another. So our application is this. Are we embracing and building? Are we embracing and building on the foundation of God's design for marriage? That's the question that we need to 
be thinking about if we're in that married relationship. It's something that we wake up to every morning and we have to continue to work at with God's help. Let's look at how we can respond to those who are struggling personally with the issues of SOGI, which is sexual orientation, gender identity issues. What should be a Christ-honoring response to those who are struggling personally with these issues? Well, we finished our message last week with this, that know that any sexual intimacy outside of God's design is considered sin and a perversion of his intent. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it says, This is the will of God concerning you that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we talked about how the Greek word pornea talks about any sexual immorality is any sex outside of the marriage relationship of a husband and a wife. And then know that any sexual intimacy outside of God's design must lead to a turning back to God's design. There must be a realization that you're going against what God says in his word. There must be a sense that I've got to repent and go the other way if I want to seek God's holiness. And remember, God wants us to seek his holiness, not seek happiness in our lives. When we seek holiness, he brings blessing. He brings joy into our life. But many in our culture say, God wants me to be happy. No, God wants you to be holy, first of all. So know that under that, you have to share confession of sin leading to repentance. Confession of sin. You have to recognize and admit that this is sinful. In Isaiah 118, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God is in the business of forgiving us of each and every and all sin. There isn't a sin that's too great for the blood of Jesus Christ if we confess it and put it under the blood. Second of all, at this point, we have to have compassionate understanding and love by others to help the person deal with their sexual sin. As I said, we have to walk along with them in this thing of messy grace as we journey with them, as they struggle. And we have to be compassionate and understanding. In Romans 2.4, we see the heart of God here. He says, or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The heart of God is he wants to show you love and care and mercy and grace so that you will turn to him who is the source to fill all the void and the needs in your life. Self-control is one of the nine manifestations of the Holy Spirit living in the believer. And we as body of believers are asked to be accountable to one another and be willing to come alongside those who are in sin and seek people out when we fall into sin. That, my friend, is one of the most beautiful things about the church, the body of believers, the church family, is that we can come alongside one another and help each other in this journey when we fall into these traps of habitual sin. It says in Galatians chapter six, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted and here's the key, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's part of our responsibility, to be our brother's keeper, to care for uh, those that are struggling. And then when we're struggling, welcome those who will come alongside and not be defensive and allow them to come into our lives. 
Know that anyone who is living outside of God's design of gender identity and sexual orientation must be shown the balance of grace and truth. Take your Bible, turn over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and you're very familiar with this story. It's the woman caught in adultery. We don't know a lot about the background of the story, but it seems like it was all a setup by the religious leaders to trap Jesus because he was going to be put in an untenable position. And you know the story. They find this woman caught in adultery. The religious leaders bring her out. Of course, they didn't bring the man that was involved in this at the same time. And they drop the lady at Jesus' feet and explains that she was caught in the very act of adultery. What's he going to do about it? And apparently they're standing there with their stones in their hands because the law says that you are to execute a person on the spot by stoning who's committed adultery. And what does Jesus do? He kneels down, he draws in the dirt. It's funny because so many commentators try to figure out what he put and wrote in the dirt. Maybe he was writing the sins of the people who had the stones. We don't know. We don't know what he wrote in the, in the sand or the dirt. But we do know that he stood up and he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And of course, they were astonished, they were stunned, and they dropped their rocks and they walked away. And we pick up the story in verse 10 in John chapter 8. Jesus stood up after they left and said to her, women, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Notice the grace and mercy. But go, and from now on, sin no more. Truth, repentance. Grace and mercy go together in the Bible in many places, much like peanut butter and jelly. Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. It's a gift. Someone gives it to us out of love. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. It's a pardon. It's a reprieve. Knowing that we've done something wrong, but someone is giving us grace or mercy in the case. God is not willing, as we think about his grace and mercy, God's not willing that any should perish, according to 2 Peter 3.9, but that all would come to repentance. And he does it with patience. It says in Romans 10, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Romans 2.4, which we just read, talked about God's kindness leading us to repentance. And then God's common grace points us to him. And then when we receive him, we get this abundant, overflowing, extra measure of grace as a believer in Christ. Notice that God gives us the truth, but he gives us the grace and the mercy and the love at the same time. You and I, we must display that same kind of mercy and grace and love to those who are trapped in habitual sin. Because God, because God shows us the same mercy, grace, and love while we're trapped in our own habitual sin as well. So that involves many, many times of walking along the journey with people. Some of them will take two steps backward and then one step forward, being there to pick them up when they fall, providing avenues of love and resources, hoping that they will take advantage of them. And it is true that at some point that you may have to separate from the relationship for a while and show tough love because sometimes it turns into a negative codependency or you have compassion fatigue of pouring yourself out or you don't want to enable the person and that's the balance. God did that in the parable of the prodigal son. The goal is to restore people to a healthy relationship with Christ and with others. 
Jesus was that perfect balance of grace and truth, and we need to study his life to better understand it. In John 1.14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He knew how to balance that tension between those two things. Well, I wish I had more time to share about this, but let's show grace and mercy even to those who are activists in the LBGTQ plus community and those who are activists in the providing abortion movement. A great video movie to watch is called Unplanned by Abby Johnson. Talks about how uh, Christians love this abortion worker to see the error of her ways and to come back and join the pro-life side and eventually become a believer in Christ. Here's application. We must be respectful and accepting of people's lifestyles that are contrary to God's design, but not affirming with the balance of grace and truth. That's it. We have to learn to accept them, to respect them, but also at the same time not affirm them and share the truth in love and grace. And that's a tough balance to get to have sometimes. Let's transition now to how God views life, the sanctity of life. Why is it sacred? How does God want children created in his image to be viewed and treated? Very important point, God values every life so everyone should value life. Boy, that sounds like a very simplistic statement, isn't it? But a challenge in our society. In Psalm 100, verse 3, God says, Know that the Lord, he is God, it is he who made us, and we are his, and we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Isaiah 44, the prophet said, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Isaiah, and Isaiah 64 says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. It's interesting in our society, we see people killing people over an expensive pair of shoes, over a little bit of money at a cash register when they're holding it up, when they're committing a robbery. And because we've devalued life with the Roe versus Wade decision in our country, we've seen the slippery slope of life continue to be disrespected and not treated with dignity. Every person is someone's relative, a mom, a sister, a brother, a father. Everyone desperately grieves and mourns when someone is killed unnecessarily. Think about this story. Pam and her husband Bob were serving as missionaries in the Philippines and praying for a fifth child. Pam contracted amoebic dysentery, an infection of the intestine caused by a parasite found in contaminated food or drink. Pam went into a coma and she was treated with strong antibiotics before they discovered she was pregnant. Doctors urged her to abort the baby for her own safety, telling her the medicines had caused irreversible damage to her future son. She refused the abortion and cited her Christian faith as the reason for her hope that her son would be born without the devastating disabilities the physicians predicted. While pregnant, Pam nearly lost the baby four times, but she refused to consider abortion. She recalled making a pledge to God with her husband, if you'll give us a son, we'll name him Timothy and we'll make him a preacher. 
Pam ultimately spent the last two months of her pregnancy in, in bed and eventually gave birth to a healthy baby boy on August 14, 1987. Pam's youngest son is indeed a preacher. He preaches in prisons. He makes hospital visits. He serves with his father's ministry in the Philippines. He works with uh, special needs children. He's also played a little football and a little baseball, and his name is Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow is that man, young man and how God miraculously brought him through that. And his mom was faithful not to abort. God created each and every life as unique and special. God created each and every life as unique and special. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.5, it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Here's the exciting thing. You and I, we have designer genes. When I say genes, G-E-N-E-S, we have designer genes. God custom made you like no one else. A Newsweek article explained about the great amounts of research being done regarding twins. The article stated that the studies not only revealed a lot about twins, but about each of us. For example, there's studies that have been done on twins that have been separated at birth and then raised totally apart and then reunited as adults. It's amazing how alike they were when they got back together, how their temperaments were similar, their choices they made in life, and their likes and their dislikes. So they're giving scientists new evidence in the debate over how much we're a product of our environment and how much we're a product of our genetic makeup. These twins are telling us that there's a lot about us, more than we think, that we're born with. And you know what? That should come as no surprise. Because as we read together in Psalm 139, that God knit us together and formed us and knew us before we even had the days on earth as being born. Ephesians 2.10 says that you and I, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That Greek word means you are a masterpiece. A famous sculptor was once asked how he is able to look at a stone and uh, make such a beautiful image by chipping away at it. And he said he looks at the stone and he envisions what he's about to sculpt, the beauty of the image. And then he merely chips away to, to reveal what is already there. And that's what God's doing in our life. He's chipping away the dross and the waste because we're diamonds in the rough. And he's making us more and more into the image of his son and more in who he created us to be. You see, from conception, God designed you to carry out a unique plan. You're just the right height to do what he's prepared for you to do. You've got just the right hair. You've got the right voice. You have just the right basic temperament. You have just the proper amount of skills and talents that he's given you. He's even giving you certain limitations to help you to be sensitive to be dependent upon him and to be compassionate and even put you in the right family to grow up in. We will all live as long as God wants us to in order until we finish and accomplish what he has created us to do in the new, unique way that he has for us to live in this life. So think about that. You are uniquely and specially made by God. Also, God takes care of the preborn children. God takes care of the preborn children. In Galatians 1.5, Paul said this, But when God, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace. 
after Paul became a believer, he began to understand that God had prepared him before his birth to be saved on the road to Damascus, to become a great apostle, to become a great church planter. In Ephesians 1, Paul goes on to say in this book, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. God knew who you were before your parents even knew who you were. He's determined who your parents would be, where you would be born, the circumstances surrounding your birth and your extended family. And there are no accidents concerning God's sovereign plan for each human being. Even those who are born out of wedlock, even those who are in the foster care system or whatever situation they find themselves in life. God teaches that life begins at conception, at conception. We know that because in the Christmas story, when we look at the angel coming to speak to Mary in Matthew's gospel, she tells him that the seed of the Holy Spirit will be planted in your womb. And from that point on, it will be a child and his name will be Jesus. We see in Luke chapter one, verse 41, and when Mary, as she went to visit Elizabeth, who was um, bearing in her womb John the Baptist, it says in Luke 1, 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 44, and behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. This little life was responding to things outside of the womb already. God knew who we were before we were even created. And remember, as I said, there's no accidents concerning God's sovereign plan for each human being. World Magazine reported in October of 2006, Princeton professor Peter Singer, who's notorious for his approval of euthanasia, which is humans or the healthcare system determining the end of life for people that they deem not worthy to live any longer, or infanticide, that parents should have the right to decide up to 30 days after the baby is born whether to keep the baby or just let it die. He's an advocate of those things. He predicted in October issue of the Foreign Policy magazine that by 2040, quote, only a rump of hardcore, know-nothing religious fundamentalists will defend the view that every human life from conception to death is sacred. During the next 35 years, he predicted the traditional view of the sanctity of human life will collapse under pressure from scientific, technological, and demographic developments. I'm here to say that science is continuing to prove more and more that a baby is born at conception or created at conception. Uh, as we think of the improvement in uh, ultrasound and other things as well, and the way that they can care for babies born very early in the pregnancy in uh, neonatal care units, it just shows us that life begins at conception. So we think about the heartbeat bills and things like that that are being uh, sent to the Supreme Court. And then God is the only one who ultimately decides who can live and die. It's not up to man to determine that. We see that we're living in a country where we have numerous states believe in assisted suicide. Um, we have people that advocate that the healthcare system and workers, that if someone who's in their 90s and needs a heart transplant, well, they're not worthy of that, that it's too costly to society 
They're not going to benefit us. These are decisions that are being discussed and bantied about. In Psalm 139, verse 16, God says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 39 says, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. In Genesis 9, 6, it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So if someone else chooses to end someone's life, they will face judgment from God and hopefully from society as well. Genesis 9-6 makes a compelling case for capital punishment. So infanticide, assisted suicide, and euthanasia are condemned by God. No human being should decide when their life should end. What about do not resuscitate uh, things that people put in their medical records or taking people off life support? And that's something that a family has to make the wise decisions to do. Because honestly, with medical technology, you can keep a per person alive indefinitely on those machines. And I've been involved in those decisions on numerous occasions. And I believe you have to rely on what the doctors are saying, the nurses, um, and what others around you are saying. But as a family, those are tough decisions that at some point you need to make. Does God allow for abortion if the baby is deformed or disabled in the womb? Well, think about Acts 9, where the man was born blind. And Jesus said he was born blind for the glory of God, so that he'd have the opportunity to be healed and receive sight. Exodus 4.11 says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He has a purpose for kids who have Down syndrome, who adults who have physical disabilities all their life. He has a purpose for all that to bring glory and honor to him. What about an abortion in extreme cases? Well, think about this. Would you consider abortion in this following situation? There's a preacher and a wife who are very, very poor. They already have 14 kids. Now the woman finds out that she's pregnant with number 15. They're living in tremendous poverty. Considering their poverty and excessive world population, would you consider recommending she also get an abortion? If so, you would have just killed John Wesley, who was one of the greatest preachers in the 19th century and started the Methodist Church. Does God allow for an abortion in the case of rape or incest? I'm going to skip over this verse, but I want to say I personally do not believe, and that's my personal conviction I personally don't believe that one of those situations that abortion should be provided, that there are other alternatives, such as putting the child up for adoption, such as uh, you know, uh, keeping that baby and raising it, knowing that God doesn't create any accidents in this life. Are humans permitted to take a child's life before birth? In Exodus 21, it says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. In other words, they believe that that is a life inside the, 
the woman's womb who's pregnant. And God in the Old Testament has strong punishment for the taking of life in the mother's womb, and we could do a study on that. God views children he created pre-born or born as gifts from God. That's the important thing, that everyone is a gift from God. In Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Children are a blessing, are a gift, and that's how they are to be perceived as they come into a family's life. Each child is precious in God's sight. There are countless stories I've seen, secular and from believers, of the love that they've received because they had a Down syndrome child and how it transformed their life. How a child that had physical disabilities or mental challenges brought so much love into the family and the value that it placed upon their lives. God is willing to forgive those who've had an abortion. This is so important. It's not the sin of all sins. God is always willing to forgive those who've had an abortion. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Isaiah 43, it says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's the assurance we have in God's word, that he can forgive someone who's gone through the trauma. And not just the woman, but also the man involved as well, who's gone through the trauma of an abortion. There's forgiveness. There's a removal of all guilt, removal of all shame. The memories will last. The emotions will be there. And I'm thankful that Pregnancy Resources, Trisha Wilson was here last week, they have a great Bible study to walk women and men through the after effects and emotions of abortion. It's called Forgiven and Set Free. It's for men and women who've gone through an abortion experience to bring forgiveness and healing, to come to the cross, to have a process of recovery. One of the really neat things over here at the Women's Choice Center, if you've ever been there, you've seen it, they've got a memory wall. And part of the healing process for women who've gone through abortion is for them to gather together and pick a name for this child and to write it down and maybe write a letter, a poem, or a song. And then put the name of that precious child that's in heaven with Jesus on that memory wall as something that they can hold on to and carry with them through life, through the tender times when they struggle with the feelings of not being forgiven of their abortion. Here's our application. How and when will you share the message of life with those who are pro-abortion with grace and truth? Many of these folks are uneducated. Many of these folks, uh, maybe they are closed-minded, but we still need to share the truth from God's word with grace with them. Here's two key thoughts to think about this morning. Two key thoughts. First of all, every Christ follower must understand God's view of life in order to communicate to the culture around us with grace and truth. That's why we're talking about this today. That's why we're giving you some biblical talking points to keep in the back of your mind or carry with you, you know, on this piece of paper and stick it in your Bible to know what can you say when you're dealing with someone who is so actively involved in uh, providing abortions and the movement it takes. Second of all, we must be careful, informed, and compassionate or we must make, sorry, we must make careful, informed, compassionate responses to those who are dealing with the issues surrounding the choice of abortion 
adoption or keeping the baby. Those are sensitive, sensitive things for a mom who is pregnant. And we have to talk them through and be there and help them or take them to where they can get the help that they need. So as we close today, how can you make a difference when it comes to showing grace, mercy, and love and sharing the truth with those who contemplate having an abortion or those who are active in the pro-abortion movement? First of all, I think one of the most important things we could do is listen. Listen to a person or a couple's story with a heart of compassion and not judgment. Offer them an opportunity to go to Women's Choice Center, Pregnancy Resources, to get an ultrasound. And you know, you've heard from Pregnancy Resources, they say that once the mom and usually the father-to-be see the image, it changes their mind. That's an important step you could offer to take them. Share what God says, as we've shared today about what God's view of the sanctity of life. Pray, pray for this person, support them. Support your, our local pregnancy resources and Women's Choice Center financially with the baby bottle drive or volunteer support or just spend time praying for them. And lastly, get involved in the ministries of our church as we try to uh, give and impart eternal values into the lives of kids, not only in our church, but do you realize in Awana and Youth Group, two-thirds of our kids that come on Wednesday night are outside of our church and they're in the community and some of the kids that come here say this is their church because they don't have church on Sunday to go to and so get involved in working with chaos student ministry get involved in Awana get involved in Sunday school on Sundays and be involved in imparting these truths into the lives of our kids so as we close today I'm going to pray for our Awana and our Sunday school workers and our chaos student ministry workers as they continue to do this, as they continue to impart eternal truths, but even just by their lifestyle and their behavior and their attitudes to impart the truths of the sanctity of life and how important each and every child that comes through these doors is to God. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I do lift up. John and Melissa Kendall and Austin and Melissa as they work with our junior high and senior hires on Wednesday night. We thank you for their example. We thank you for their model. We thank you that it's consistent with what is being taught from the word of God. And Lord, I just thank you that they're willing to pour into these kids' lives each and every week. With kids who are homeschoolers, kids from Davenport and PV School District and, and uh, other places, Lord. And we thank you for the mix of kids that we have. And we pray specifically you'll be with Austin and Melissa, John and Melissa as they minister to them. We thank you for all our Awana workers who are so faithful. We thank you for the, the kids that have come as a result of Vacation Bible School who are coming to faith in Christ. And uh, this is their church on Wednesday night. And we thank you for our workers, for their faithfulness to come even out in the cold nights, even when they may not feel well. We, we thank you for them and help them to see that they're making a difference in the lives of others. We thank you for those that are even downstairs this morning with our kids for Sunday school and for Children's Church, so you continue to bless them and provide for us more people as well. As we value life, as we share the gospel with these people, uh, may, us, may we, Lord, be found faithful to do these things. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.